Good evening. Good to see everyone present. Appreciate you being here and hope and trust that we will leave here better than when we came. Tonight I want to look at some highlights in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a book filled with information that we all need to know and know it well. It helps us in so many ways to fully understand what the system of Christianity is all about, where it originated, and how God's scheme of redemption progressed into being the perfect law of liberty. It was written to the Hebrew Christians residing in Jerusalem to help them persevere to the end as they began their Christian lives encouraging them not to fall back into Judaism. Remember that these Jews had been educated under the laws and the institutions of Moses' law, and all of their religious habits and impressions caused them to still be attached to these rites and ceremonies, and they were many in that law. For generations, these people had lived that way which made it very difficult for them to change to a greatly different way of life, which Christianity would be to them. You stop to think about all of the sacrifices, the washings, the prayer times, and the feast days which they were accustomed to, then all of a sudden these things are gone. You can imagine how perplexed they might have been. Also, the spirit of envy and malice which had caused the unbelieving Jews in Christ when he came to put to death our precious Lord was directed also toward these new Christians that were his followers. The disbelieving scribes and rulers had exercised their powers against Christ are now persecuting his followers. Some of them they killed. Some they put in prison, and others they spoiled their goods. And all this was done to stop the progress of Christianity while pleading with every one of them to continue to follow the law of Moses. So we can understand why this was so discouraging to the followers of Christ there in Jerusalem who lived there under the very shadow of the temple and right in the middle of the violent opposition that was being put forth. This is why the letter uh, was written to encourage the Hebrew brethren. Tonight we will look at some of the high points in this letter. The author of the book of Hebrews is unknown, but that doesn't really matter. What does matter is that several manuscripts were found of the book and were accepted by the early historians as being inspired writing and had no contradiction of any way to any other scripture. Therefore, they included it in the canon of the Bible. And most of them accepted the Apostle Paul as the writer. We go first to chapter 1, the beginning of the book, and beginning in, in verse 1. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways, my scripture is taken from the New King James, 
God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the worlds. The book begins with one of the most expressive sentences found in the New Testament. Most of the letters of the New Testament, uh, and most of them were written by the Apostle Paul, uh, instead of beginning with a common greeting like Paul did to the brethren at Philippi and, and and all those other letters, he plunges directly into the theme he's writing about, which is God has spoken through his Son. God's Word is powerful and important when it is given to man through any means. In ancient times, God spoke to mankind <coughs> pardon me, mainly through the fathers and the prophets. But in these last days, God's last message to mankind was given through His Son. That is very significant and points out the importance of listening to it and being obedient to it. Now the phrase various times in the verse just read refers to the fact that redemption was revealed, salvation, to the ancient people gradually and in fragments. It didn't all come at once. We go back to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. It was promised to him that through Eve's seed, his uh, he, his head would be uh, crushed. And Genesis 3 and 15. To Abraham, he said that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Genesis 12. And then a little bit more to David in Psalm 22, he speaks of the suffering of a Messiah to come. And in Psalm 16, he speaks of the Messiah's resurrection and deliverance from the power of Hades for the people. We see then that God, through the prophets and others, were given precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, as Isaiah put it in chapter 28 of his book. First in the Bible, we find there is the patriarchal age. This patriarchal age took up only a book and a half of the Bible. Very little of it is given in Scripture. This law was given through the fathers for the family, including men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The people knew through that law which was given to them through the fathers, that murder was wrong. At least Cain did. He gave that away when he asked God, Am I my brother's keeper? He knew better. They also knew about offering sacrifices. Again, Abel knew what to offer when he offered an animal, and Cain didn't because he offered products from his crop. Lot knew that sodomy was a sin, but very little else is given uh, in the patriarchal age until the law of Moses. And then the Mosaical age came. 
But this law promised only atonement for sin and was inferior to the law of Christ in so many ways. The phrase in various ways that we read from the verse previously refers to the many ways that God used to distribute uh, his will to the people of old. He did this through dreams and visions and burning bushes even, symbols, audible voices through dumb animals, and sometimes simply through inspiration. But none of these came up to the fullness or the completeness of what God had to say through his Son. The Old Testament was never intended to be God's law forever. It was preparatory, actually awaiting a final and a complete revision of the law, which came to pass when Christ was sent to the earth to bring a better law to mankind. The phrase, in these last days he has sent his son, in verse 2, suggests that the Christian age is the last of the series of God's plan. It is now fully revealed, and another will come. We might put it this way. If we, met, if we miss the boat this time, there won't be another one. You can't sit back and wait on another law, a better law. This is a, the last law in the last days, and we must obey it. But then in the fullness of time, Jesus came, who is himself the light of the world, bringing the complete plan of redemption to every man. The importance of this final revelation of God's will is seen vividly in this fact. The greatest message, that is, revelation that God ever had for mankind was not given to us by man, but by his Son. In verse 2, there's a very comforting statement made that we should feel very good about. He says, His Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Well, you might ask the question, how is this good for me, that the Son was made heir of all things? In Romans 8.16, we find, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. So we too may be said to inherit all things. We are joint heirs with Christ. If I am God's child, I am his heir, and one who shall receive the full inheritance that's been offered. As Christ was God's son, we are also God's children, in a lesser sense, but still a joint heir in the same family as Christ, and will therefore reap great benefits. The book of Hebrews claims many times that the new law of Christ is superior to the law of Moses. As a matter of fact, the word better is used 14 times to show this truth in the book of Hebrews. 
we want to look at a few of these things that he claims to be better, says are better. First, he says that Christ is better than the angels. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4. Having become so much better than the angels as he had by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Notice the phrase, having become so much better. In chapter 2 and verse 7 of Hebrews, the writer says, He was made a little lower than the angels. But here it says he has become much better than the angels. When he was lower, this happened when he became a man here on earth. But he is no longer lower since he has gone back to heaven being obedient to God. He is superior to the angels. After obeying God in everything and including the suffering of crucifixion, he returned back to heaven better than the angels. Hebrews promises a better hope in chapter 7 and verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Now, although the law of Moses and the patriarchal law did curb many sins and did help men to know that what things God approved of and what things he called sin, but the law just wasn't sufficient to meet and accomplish God's design for the redemption of mankind. And because of this was set aside bringing in a new way by which we all now as priests draw nigh to God and worship Him in spirit and in truth. And that gives us a better hope, the hope of eternal life in heaven. The New Testament is called a better covenant than the law of Moses. Hebrews 7:22. By so much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. We know that the word covenant and law and will and testament all mean basically the same thing. The new covenant or new testament is better in many ways than the old testament. But in a significant way, it is better because of the one who was the guarantor or the surety the one who stands good that the will will be distributed as it is said that it will be, that the debt will be paid. The covenant is better because Jesus was made that surety of the covenant which would never change. The old covenant, which never made anything perfect, was designed from the very beginning by God to be nothing more than a way to introduce and prepare the people to be able to receive at some time a perfect law. And of course, it is better because it offers thee for life forevermore through obedience to his will. We can go to heaven if we obey God. The new law offers better sacrifices. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 22. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, 
and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies or shadows of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Under the old law, we know, many sacrifices were made throughout every year. But once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest first cleansed himself, that is ceremonially, and then entered into the most holy place of the temple or tabernacle to offer sacrifice for the atonement of all the sins of all the Israelites. Leviticus chapter 20 lists in detail all the sacrifices to be offered on that day. Animals were slain, and the blood from them was sprinkled on the tabernacle, on the altar, and on the Ark of the Covenant. And then beginning in verse 20 of that chapter, we find this information. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness, the scapegoat. The goat carried all the sins of the people, but the sins weren't forgiven. This is the way people received atonement for their sins. There was no forgiving, no forgetting of sins, until Christ made the supreme sacrifice for sins. The old law offered nothing for relief from sin except atonement, which really means reconciliation, being received back into God's good graces. The sins weren't forgiven. They weren't forgotten about. But it made the people okay in God's sight. But then... Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, says this, But Christ came as a high priest of good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that it was not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption, the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise 
of the eternal inheritance. Note, Christ's sacrifice purified both the sins of these people under the old covenant as well as us today, everyone under the New Testament. Therefore, that we see that Christ died not only for us, but for men like Job and Adam and Noah and Abraham and David and, and all faithful Israelites, as well as for us today. Then there's the 11th chapter of Hebrews, sometimes subheaded faith's role of honor. Folks like Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Jacob and Joseph, Moses and Rehab are said to have been blessed because of their faith and obedience to God. Then, beginning in verse 13, we find these words. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off were assured of them and embrace them, and confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country." Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Abraham and his descendants had been promised that through them all the nations of the earth would be blessed. They died not having seen that promise. They could only catch a glimpse of it from afar and in a way greeted it as a wanderer greets his longed-for home as he comes back home. Before he gets there, when it comes into sight at a distance, he can see it and is full of anticipation, but he can't fully enjoy it yet. That was the case of Abraham and the people of old. Every normal person desires a home. It's a natural instinct. These patriarchs desired a better country, a better home than that which they had. They did not yet understand that that new home would be heaven and that it would require the blood of the Messiah to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself so that God might be just in justifying all true believers. This was to them still a mystery. Nevertheless, they seemed to have had no doubt whatsoever of the fact that when their earthly house of this tabernacle was dissolved, they would then have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, one God has prepared for them a city. And then there's an important verse in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. How shall we escape? Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through the angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience 
received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Since Christ has come and given us a system to make us God's children, a law that is so much better in many ways than was the law of Moses, we should give our utmost attention to it, lest we drift away from it. Because God has spoken to us through His Son, that message is most important and must be obeyed. Then the statement is made, lest we drift away. Note it is not the gospel which from uh, which drifts away from men. It is men who drift away from the gospel. One writer likens it to a ship which is not tied securely to the dock and slips away from its mooring during the night and the next day they find it destroyed. Another likens it to taking a wrong course, like a cracker crumb going into your windpipe, choking you, making you cough. This happens to me quite often because I just don't pay close enough attention while I'm eating crackers. I'm sure it's happened to you. We have to pay attention lest we drift away. Another writer put it this way. He pictures us as in a boat in a stream just above a waterfall. The natural tendency which would be to carry us downstream to ruin. It's easy to do. All you have to do is nothing. And you'll drift. Just drift along. But to keep from drifting downstream to our death, we just have to put forth some effort. Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 24, He says, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Why were these people not able to enter into the straight gate? Because they didn't strive until it was too late. They didn't work at it until it was too late. The gospel call has limitations. One can find the door of mercy closed if he neglects too long. Maybe because he drifts so far away he doesn't care. The Lord doesn't close it. The drifter closes the door to salvation. Now let's go further to verses 25 through 28 of that same scripture. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence. And you talked in in our streets. Uh, But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you, where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and yourselves thrust out. 
we must listen to what Peter said. He says, make your calling and election sure by giving diligence, uh, diligent need to the things which we have heard. We need to begin now with that diligence and never stop. The Christian who would make his calling and election sure has an obligation to pay close attention that he does not drift away from the things he has heard. Unless the mind is held closely to the words which God has spoken, is it easy to take the wrong course? We must ever be watchful. We must note another important aspect of this verse and what it teaches, that it teaches one can drift away, which refutes without doubt the Calvinistic doctrine of once saved, always saved. We can drift away from being saved. Now let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 24. A verse we've heard many times. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Many of the Hebrew brethren were no doubt discouraged, as we've already stated, and some of them had probably fallen into the habit of neglecting the regular meetings of the church, which was wrong for several reasons. Number one, neglecting the worship service by doing so, they neglected an ordinance of God. Nothing is more obvious in the early history of the church than the fact that the members of the congregations desired to meet together on every Lord's Day and no doubt many other days during the week. Look at Acts 2.42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. 1 Corinthians 16, 1, 2, uh, Paul says, Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Then Acts 20, verse 7, now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread. These meetings that we have mentioned in these scriptures held the sanction of the apostles and for a while were done under their immediate supervision. The apostles were there when they were doing all of this meeting. And although the Bible says that, that uh, you are sinning if you do not uh, go to church, as we call it today, or meet with the assembly, there's no doubt that uh, it's wrong to continually miss the assembly when you can be there. These meetings were held with the sanction of the apostles and under their supervision. Therefore, carried the obligation of a divine law. Had to be the same thing. Secondly, it's wrong not to assemble 
because they deprive themselves of the many social and religious privileges that you find at worship. The Church of Christ is, in a sense, a social institution. Sit back now, wait a minute. Designed for the edification and the improvement of all its members. When Christ meets with His people, we meet with Christ. Now, don't get this wrong. It is true that some denominational churches are not anything more than so-called insti- uh, social institutions. That is, they, they mean nothing more than to get together and have fun and drink coffee. But the word social, which has the meaning of pleasant companionship, is what I'm talking about. The public meeting of the Church of Christ is to worship God as well as to bless and strengthen those present for the many trials and conflicts of life. Now, if you don't think that White Oak's a social congregation, why is it so hard for us to get started on time? (laughs) We uplift one another. We edify one another when we come together. And you can't do that if you're at home. None can therefore properly properly estimate the loss in willingly being absent from the meetings with the brethren. Number three, to willingly miss the assembly is doing wrong because of the bad example which they were setting before others and is true of us today. Christ intends that every one of his disciples shall be a living witness for truth. No wonder then that we are exhorted not to neglect the duty and the privilege of meeting with our brethren in public worship. Yes, meeting is a privilege and a blessing. And a very important thing to remember is that it is not what a believer gets out of the assembly or from the assembly, but rather on what he can contribute to the assembly as he considers others in order to stimulate them to love and good works. Our responsibility is to, of course, do the best we can for ourselves. But we're responsible for many more than just ourselves. We're responsible for each other. A person who attends a public worship only for what he can uh, get and whose attendance becomes more and more sporadic because he thinks he's getting nothing from the service does not yet understand the significance of this verse in Hebrews. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together lest you drift away. Why do people get in the habit of missing church? Some may have done so from the fear of persecution. Some people uh, feel that they are not the best of people and that they're just not going to treat me like I should be treated down there. Some may have been going to sleep spiritually. Some may have neglected the services because they were already good enough without going to church regularly. I do so much good, I don't have to go to church regularly. Some have overlooked the fact that the assembly is a wonderful opportunity 
to stimulate others to do good, while others have forgotten that influence is one of the greatest tools that a Christian has to persuade others to obey God. Keep on studying Hebrews. It's a helpful book. Thank you. Is anyone downstairs?